Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, here's a question for you this morning. How much cash do you have on you? I'm not talking about in your bank account or, you know, somewhere else. I mean, in your wallet right now, do you actually have cash? Let's ask Raji Sohal about that. Raji, do you have cash in your wallet? I do, but it's the same cash that I had there, oh, two and a half years ago, right before the pandemic started. Okay, that's a long right time. When, <laughs> yeah, and right when that pandemic started, we all obviously went to, to contactless because uh, we didn't know how COVID-19 spread. We didn't know about the airborne stuff. Remember when we were all disinfecting our grocery? Oh, so yeah. yes, I had these bills in my wallet that I normally would have used because I actually used to use cash, like paper cash for a lot of stuff. Like I always pay, I always tipped in cash. There's some things that I just like to pay in cash and I've gone contactless like a lot of people. So I wondered, are we destined to become a cashless future? Are we all going to just move to contactless permanently? And then I saw this uh, notice from the RBC, a report that said Canadians actually demanded more cash than ever. It's reached its highest level in 60 years. Yeah. I know. I I was surprised by that, too. So the pandemic didn't kill cash, apparently. Uh, We are more attached to hard currency now than we were before. Now, that doesn't mean you're using it. It just means that people like to have it, they're saying. They're not using it necessarily in daily transactions, but you might be just kind of holding on to some cash. Yeah, I've also heard of people buying gold during the pandemic and and holding it. Um, And I guess this is an economic move. Although, uh, you know, you hear don't do that with your cash, don't just put it under the mattress. But I think that's what people are doing, because they're not using it to buy stuff. And they're not using it in stores, they're just hanging on to it. And I have a funny story about this, that at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my daughter lost her first tooth. And, you know, it's really monumental when you lose your first tooth. And I had to ask myself, oh, how much does the tooth fairy even give these days? Because when I was a kid, it was... We talked about this. I thought it was supposed to be like 25 cents a tooth, right? Uh, But, Uh, you know, people told me, no, there's (laughs) inflation. Like, you got to give her at least $5, especially for that first tooth. And then I go into my wallet and I'm like, oh, right, I don't have $5. I didn't even have $10 or $20 because we were all you know, going contactless at that point. And I didn't have this paper cash in my, my wallet except for big bills. So the Tooth Fairy had to decide between $50 no, or $100. You didn't. You did not give that. <laughs> you know how much all parent, other parents would be like, thanks for nothing, Rachi, for right, inflating so the price also- of the first tooth. Yeah, she was the first in her um, daycare to lose a tooth because people don't usually lose teeth that early. So she she got a $50 bill from the tooth fairy along with a note uh, just telling her that the first one is like this and not to expect it again in the future. But at the next kid's birthday party that I went to, all the parents came up to me and said, hey, uh, 
How about that? $50 I would resent you. Tooth. I would resent you. <laughs> if I, when my kids were little, if I found out another parent had done this, I would give you a piece of my mind, Raji. Yeah, I got a lot. I got in a lot of trouble. But I always pay for stuff now with uh, my phone. I use the uh, wallet function on my phone uh, and, and just go contactless. Occasionally, I will use my actual plastic credit card. But I'm in uh, no hurry to start hoarding paper cash. And and mm. I actually hope it's something we we are eventually going to move fully away from. I wonder, though, in reading through this report from RBC, is if what's happening is people are holding on to cash and, and using it for bigger purchases rather than putting those things on their credit card because they also pointed out that much of the decline in how people are paying for items, the decline is with credit cards. So people are saying, you know what, I am not going to add more to my credit card debt, which is a good thing. And they're saying, I'm going to use cash for that. Yeah, but you know all these new point systems and reward systems that you get with different credit cards? I think they've done such a good job in their marketing and of becoming so appealing to people, especially young people who are like, huh, yeah, just charge it, just charge it and not, you know, watching their debt climb. But I know that that's probably the reason that my dad never got into credit cards. Uh, you know, going contactless was much to his chagrin because he loved paying for everything with cash. And then it would just constantly remind right. him of how hard earned that cash was when you put it on the counter. Here's something interesting about the denomination of the bills that people are storing. So out of the increase in currency demand, Notes that are worth $50 or more accounted for all of the increase in currency demand. So that's since 2014. So the get this, the $100 bill now accounts for 60% of all the currency that is in circulation. That is up from 50% in 2010. Wow. You need to start checking of... people's mattresses. Um, right. I need to check <laughs> under their pillows <laughs> because they're keeping. Bills. Yeah. That's a lot of $50 and $100 bills that are out there in circulation. People are clearly deciding they want to have some cash on hand just in case. This is making me think maybe I need to rethink uh, everything. <laughs> right? Uh, as, as someone who doesn't like to hang on to the stuff. I mean, you know, we catch colds by touching money and then accidentally touching, you know, rubbing your eye or, or hitting your mouth. But I guess people are not handling this. They're not. Much. They're they're hiding it away in cereal boxes in their house and and like you said, under the mattress. That well, I'm just speculating that that's where people are keeping their money. <laughs> also, they said the rise of e-commerce and digital methods of payment are not as, you know, the increase in them has not been as huge. As of August of last year, they said the Bank of Canada found 62% of survey respondents had made a cash payment in the previous week. That is still a lot. 81% of people telling the Bank of Canada they have no plans to go cashless. We, it's like we completely changed our minds during the pandemic, whereas before the pandemic, we were leaning towards that, doing it more and more. And now we've decided, no, you know what? We like cash. Yeah, I would love to see the demographic breakdown for this because, you know, to my mind, this all just struck me as so surprising. I thought everyone wants to go cashless. And also you look at cryptocurrency and the popularity of it and it has, you know, it's not tied to any bank and it's paperless. It's all digital money. And so I thought we were just all pushing towards that direction. But it sh this shows us that no. It's quite the opposite. It is quite the opposite. That is so interesting. Raji, thank you. 
Thanks, Simi. Taraji Sohal there. We're talking about going cashless. Clearly something during the pandemic changed. Really interesting report out from RBC where they're saying demand for cash is at its highest level in 60 years, even though you do have this huge shift to e-commerce and virtual payments that happened in the last few years. And it's not that you're keeping spending money necessarily. It's that you're paying for bigger items or you're just deciding you want to hold on to a little bit of cash and have it on hand just in case. If you want to weigh in on this one, are you one of those people? Did you decide that, you know what, I need to keep a little cash around maybe? Let me know, simi at cknw.com. Isn't it interesting, the largest shares of denominations that are in, you know, in um, out there circulating right now in circulation are the 50 and the $100 bill. This is Mornings with Simi. So Health Minister Adrian Dix made some comments about nurse practitioners this week for a statement on Nursing Week and also in the legislature talking about the role that nurse practitioners play. And while he started out maybe trying to salute them and their role in the healthcare system, the comments instead did a whole lot to make other parts of the healthcare system not very happy, in particular doctors. Let's find out why that is. Joining us now is Dr. Remnick Dosange, who is the president of Doctors of BC. Dr. Dosange, thank you for being here. Thank you. Good morning, Simi, for having me on your show. Can you talk to me a little bit about the comments here? What was it that the health minister said that doctors are not happy about? I think the comments in the lay of the land and the current context in within a primary care crisis, an opioid crisis and the pandemic, um, we understand that the comments we found were quite disheartening and disappointing and divisive, really, because we've all been working together collegially with our nurse practitioner colleagues alongside to really manage all of the crisis that we're seeing in healthcare. And I think the comment in particular was that nurse practitioners cannot replace the doctors and they do not provide better care than doctors in severe medical cases, which Minister Dix had referred to. And we know that we have the most respect for our nurses and our nurse practitioner colleagues, and they absolutely are part of our team-based care strategy and help us deliver care. But doctors, are, especially family doctors, are not replaceable. And right now, I feel like doctors are already feeling like they are really under fire with everything that's going on. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Simi. This is the hard part. We are in the increased moral distress and burnout like we've never seen before. And we've got so many physicians that are willing to walk away because they just can't cope with the current status. And we understand that we've got close to one million patients that are unattached. And that's really disheartening for all of us because we know that attached patients and patients that have a family doctor have better patient outcomes. Okay, but how can we fix the situation here? I think the end result is that what people want, patients want, is to have a relationship with somebody who will help them with their health care. Absolutely. And we're asking for that too. We recognize that our nurse practitioner colleagues get to have more time to spend with their patients due to the way that they're paid. And the nurse practitioner clinics are provided infrastructure, support and funding, as well as a payment model that allows them that time with the patients. Unfortunately, family medicine clinics are lacking that source of critical health infrastructure and are fully funded and operated by family physicians that have to act like small business owners. 
this is difficult. Also, with the lack of access to family doctors, it only burdens us and creates more pressure for us. So we feel like we have to see more patients because we see our patients suffering. So, Dr. DeSantin, how do we fix this? I know there's been some talk about reworking how we fund clinics, how clinics work, taking some of that overhead away, you know, out of the hands of doctors so that they don't have to worry about that. I mean, is that the solution? That's potentially one of the solutions. We know that we have to address the increased rise of business costs and the operational critical infrastructure needs a bolster and support. And we also know that the payment model, the fee-for-service system, works for some but does not work for many. And we need different options for payment modalities. So potentially we could spend more time with our patients and give them the care that they deserve. Okay. Has there been discussions with the government on this? Like, I'd like to think that there's work going on behind the scenes to try to solve this problem. Currently, we are in negotiations with the government, and I'm unable to speak to the exact negotiations and what is happening at those tables. But we are hopeful that we have a collaborative relationship with our government but the, and they get this message. But messages like this are really hard to handle in the current context and actually could be pretty inflammatory. I know I've had an outpouring of response from a lot of my colleagues, which, you know, have had enough. And Dr. Dosage, I've heard a lot of discussion as well about people saying, well, in other provinces, it's a different situation. In Alberta, you've got family doctors who are accepting patients. What is so different right next door in Alberta from what's happening in BC? I think while there's a lot of learnings to do with our Alberta neighbours, I think we have to understand what has worked in certain jurisdictions could work here. And I think we have to look at other systems outside of our own to understand how healthcare systems can thrive. And we know there's areas and pockets where they do things entirely well and the team-based care strategies there are phenomenal. And the remuneration for physicians is a bit different there too. We are paid less in BC than we are in Alberta. Okay, so then, you know, is that all stuff? It sounds like there's a huge overhaul then that needs to happen here. Are we on the track to do that? I really hope so, because you're absolutely right, Simi. You said we need an overhaul. I absolutely believe we need an overhaul. We need to rethink the way we're doing things and find solutions that can serve our patients. Because when we watch our patients suffer, it's truly disheartening. And we want our patients to be able to get the best type of health care that they deserve. So when you heard these comments about nurse practitioners, then are you concerned that you think that's not the way that you think the system should be going? I believe the system should be moving in a direction where we work alongside our nurse practitioner colleagues. I think it's important to recognize our individual skill sets and work to our full scope of practice. And that being said, we absolutely can use our nurse practitioner colleagues alongside us to help the patients. Patients need to be seen and need to have access. But that's not saying that that family doctors are replaceable. And that was the most important aspect of all of this, is that the value for family doctors, that's what I would like our minister and our government to understand, that we are irreplaceable and we have been lifting the system for so many years, especially our providers that have been doing longitudinal medicine. They have really been the backbone and support of the primary care system, and we need action an investment in family doctors. Do we need more family doctors? Like, where do we get them from? I think we could use more family doctors, yes. But what I do know is that we've got roughly 6,100 family physicians in this province that are trained to do family medicine. However, only half of them 
roughly half of them are practicing family medicine because of the current constraints of this system. So we need to, again, bolster support for the family physicians that are in practice. We are at a critical juncture. We are at risk of attrition and losing the family doctors we have currently in practice. We have to keep them in this practice and the ability to see more patients and the ability to do the work that they do. We know that they're overburdened with the administrative burdens and things that take them away from being a true family doctor. So those are certain fixes that the government can definitely help us with. All right, Dr. Dosanjh, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you so much, Simi. Interesting discussion. Dr. Ramnik Dosanjh is the president of Doctors of BC. We heard this week Health Minister Adrian Dix in the legislature kind of extolling the virtues of nurse practitioners and about all the time that they can spend with patients, and that's great. But doctors at BC and doctors in general are saying, well, wait a minute here. We would love to be able to spend more time with our patients too, but we're not able to do it because of the way things are set up. They want that flexibility as well. And honestly, for you as a patient, of course you would like that flexibility too, to spend more time with your doctor to talk about your health issues, right? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Six candidates for the Conservative leadership had a debate last night. And you know who was there checking all of this out, watching the proceedings, analyzing and analyzing is our very own David Aiken, Global National's chief political correspondent who joins us now. Good morning, David. Morning, Sim. I'm, I'm, I'm getting closer to Vancouver. I'm in Edmonton, just <laughs> some Rocky Mountains separating us here. Good to be with you. Nice to have you close by. Did you get yourself an Oilers jersey, though? I heard you were went out to a restaurant and you said you were the only person there without an Oilers jersey on. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. Yeah, I got here the uh, the game they lose in overtime to the Kings. But uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're crazy for the hockey here. And <laughs> they were crazy for the, uh, here's the segue, they were crazy for conservatives last night. They had a thousand people out to this wow. uh, debate at the convention center in downtown Edmonton. Unfortunately, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not sure it depends on your point of view. There wasn't all the fireworks that we saw a week ago in Ottawa. There wasn't all the sniping and the, you know, personal attacks. And again, some people like that. Um, some didn't. Um, and, but the, the result was because of the format, um, which a lot of people criticize, I got to tell you, it, even with a thousand people in the room, there wasn't a lot of energy. Um, it was the first debate with Patrick Brown, the Brampton, Ontario mayor, the first time he'd been a, there. He took a couple of shots. He gave a couple of shots. But um, I think that was the sort of the takeaway from the participants was uh, it was a very strange format that sort of inhibited, uh, you know, real uh, free for all. Right. And so what struck you as some of the highlights? Well, I guess the, the big headline that people are talking about today um, is the the commitment by Pierre Poliev, whoever everyone I think says is the front runner to fire the Bank of Canada governor, Tiff Macklem. Now, Paul, you has been going around the country saying the Bank of Canada is to blame for inflation that we're now in, that uh, the bank, you know, quote, printed money uh, during the pandemic to uh, prop up the Trudeau government. Um, take that for what, it, what it's will, uh, what you will. Most economists say inflation in Canada is not a made-in-Canada problem. It's a global problem. We're seeing inflation everywhere. War in Ukraine, high oil prices, supply chain problems. Uh, that's what is causing inflation, not the Bank of Canada. But it doesn't matter to Polyev. He said he'd fire the Bank of Canada governor. Now, that is very rarely done. Yeah. Um, Turkey fired its bank, central bank governor a little while ago, and the Turkish economy cratered, the currency cratered. We've not really done that in Canada. Uh, there would be some serious financial implications if Polyev was PM and did that. 
So we'll, we'll be watching today, I think, for reaction to that. And uh, he will presumably be talking more about that as the campaign goes on. That was a that to me was the big sort of uh, headline moment, if you will, in the night. So do you think that given everything that happened, you said the constrictive format and all that, do you think this debate would have much of an impact? I think so, because I think voters are sort of getting a clear sense that there's two sort of choices, two camps, if you will, of the six candidates. And remember, remember, it's a ranked ballot. So every voter is going to be asked, who's your first choice? Who's your second choice, et cetera? Um, it, but it, because when they count it, it, the winner gets has to get 50% plus one. So you just keep knocking people off the successive ballots. Anyhow, in the freedom category, let's call it, you got, I think, Pierre Polyab, top of the charts, the most number one votes. And then I put Lesson Lewis. She's the social conservative, the only one campaigning on a pro-life platform, anti-abortion. Um, and then uh, Ontario MPP Roman Babber, um, he was in Doug Ford's PC caucus, but he got kicked out of that caucus last year because he was against public health restrictions. He didn't like mask mandates, didn't like vaccine mandates. So there's your freedom three, if you will, Polyev, Lewis, and Babber. I think voters will list one, two, three in some order there. Then on the other side, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe the unity team or something like that. This would be Jean Charest's side. And Charest will be the top of this pack, the former Quebec premier. Then an Ontario MP, Scott Aitchison. And for those watching debates who like Charest um, or the other one in this group, Patrick Brown, the, the, the mayor of Brampton, a lot of people are saying, you know, this Aitchison, I didn't know much about him, but he seems like a really reasonable guy. Um, and so, uh, so he might pick up some attention. But those three, I think they are fishing in the same pool of voters. So that divide, that cleavage, if we all use the political science term, that's the uh, I think that's what we're going to see in, in this race going forward. Um, freedom versus you know unity, if you will. OK. And so what happens next now? OK, so next up is the French language debate. It's in Laval, Quebec, on May 25th. And uh, the, the, the cutoff to sign of voters is June 3rd. Uh, um, this French debate, it's also sponsored by the party, is going to be important because um, every riding in the country gets 100 points in this race. And to win the race, you need the most points. So it doesn't matter if you have a riding with, you know, 3,000 party members. Um, it's worth only 100 points. And there's a lot of ridings here in Alberta where there will be three, five, ten thousand 10,000 members. It doesn't matter. 100 points only. Interesting. In Quebec, there's not a lot of conservatives, but you'll have ridings with like 200 members, 120 members. Still worth 100 points in the leadership race. Now, here in, 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 in Alberta and Saskatchewan, there's 48 ridings combined, 4,800 points up for grabs. Quebec, 78 ridings, 7,800 points. So you, if, even though there's not as many conservative voters in Quebec, a candidate has to pay attention to that. Now, Polyev and Charest are really the only two candidates that speak French uh, in a way they can go at each other. All the others are going to be muddling through in some form or another. So we're going to be watching that debate. It's very important for the race. Even though there's not so many conservatives in Quebec, the, the, these candidates have got to win. They're up 7,800 points up for grabs. That's how Andrew Scheer won. He really focused on those small ridings in Quebec because they're all with 100 points. And that, to a degree, is how Aaron O'Toole did it as well. Okay, that's what's going to make this thing so interesting. David, thank you. Hey, no problem. This is Mornings with Simi. Why are rent prices so high in the suburbs right across the country? Well, one of the reasons, it turns out, might actually be millennials. Let's find out why that is. Paul Dannison is with us now, the content director at Rentals.ca. Uh, Rentals.ca actually did this report looking at the rental situation across the country. Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Cindy. First off, how did you collect this data? How did you figure this out? 
Well, we uh, talked to experts across the nation, including CMHC uh, analysts. Uh, I just talked to um, housing analysts, rental analysts across the country, and then we look at each metro area uh, in Canada. Okay. When it comes to suburbs, though, what is happening there? Those are the areas that we tend to think should have cheaper rent, right? Exactly. But during the pandemic, uh, when the work from home phenomenon happened, many millennials decided, you know, I need a little more space, uh, a second room for an office, maybe a yard for kids. So they branched out into a lot of the suburbs and smaller cities and that caused the rents to rise. Uh, there's not enough supply there. Uh, so, and some of them have decided to stay, while others have kind of started to head back to the downtowns and cause rents to rise there too. So, is it because that that cohort, that age group, is so large, they're having this influence on on everything that's happening in terms of the rental market? Yes. Yeah, it's the it's the largest group since the baby boomers, and um, you know they're we see them just basically kind of split in half, moving toward the suburbs and smaller cities, and then some are just uh, as the pandemic wanes, they've gone back to the downtown areas. So rents in both areas are going up. Okay, well that's not a good sign. Where is it particularly bad, Paul? Vancouver, <laughs> Metro Vancouver. Right. <laughs> what a shocker. Uh, right? How tight is that when you compare it to other parts of the country? Well, the vacancy rate by the CMHC is 1.2% in Vancouver. Um, we do national rent reports every month. Vancouver is at the top of the list every month. Rents for a two-bedroom average uh, last month over $3,100. It'll be more this month. Um, Vancouver has severe supply shortage and a lot of people who want to live there. You've got immigration, you've got interprovincial movement of people coming to the province, um, and you have a a lot of retail spaces being built. So in the next couple of years, it's going to attract a lot more employees. So is any jurisdiction, any area tackling this rental crisis, this rental crunch? I would have to say not very well anywhere. And I don't think Vancouver is either. Um, The problem is basically is that they talk a lot about it at the provincial level, at the municipal level, even at the federal level, but the governments don't come together to to do something together. One government does one thing, gets down to the municipal level, they don't like it, or they uh, water it down with a whole bunch of amendments and the market stays tight and we have a housing crisis just like we did back in 2019 the difference is is through the pandemic we kind of forgot about it now Mm -hmm. the pandemic has waned oh wow we've got a housing crisis again so let me ask you this then millennials are they looking for the same type of rentals as you know everybody else are they are they looking for something larger are they looking for something where they can have families like what are they looking for exactly or are they looking for one bedrooms I think all of the above. It depends on, on uh, the the person. I mean, if you're starting a family and you're thinking, I can work from home, why not get that extra bedroom for office space, uh, have a little bit more room so I can go in the suburbs and get a little bit cheaper. Um, and you have uh, 
uh, as a scenario, a single millennial just in the workplace wants to live downtown where all the action is, and they're moving that way. Okay, so when you say moving that way and you look at this report, what is the trend line then? So what are we expecting to see in the next 10 years when it comes to the rental market? Unless some things change, uh, rents are going to continue to go up. There's going to be a lot of supply. I mean, I'm sorry, not enough supply and too much demand. And uh, people are continuing to move to B.C., it's BC is where this is this rental situation is kind of a critical mass. Uh, people at the government level, all three government levels are going to have to come together and do something about this because this is a crisis and only getting worse. What I find interesting about this, Paul, is that, you know, we've been talking about this here in, in BC and in Metro Vancouver for well, years now. But it seems like more and more this is being reflected right across the country, that that crunch that we have here is now being seen everywhere. Exactly. You see it, uh, obviously, in Toronto. Um, and uh, recent uh, past few years, Halifax has become a, uh, a problem area, too, with a 1% vacancy rate, rents going up, people moving to that coast, and supply uh, not not a nearly adequate for the number of people moving there. So across the country, that's the case. In Montreal, too. Okay, and so that doesn't seem like any jurisdiction is really getting on board and realizing. I guess that also explains why housing has suddenly become such a federal issue that people are talking about, it seems like, nationally. Yes. Federal government um, has its housing program that it started, I think, in 2017. They've come up with with, uh, new measures uh, CMHC is is really active, uh, but yeah, it, it's the problem has to be a, a, addressed uh, at every level of government. Right. So the there problem. is there but, is no more of this. Like, okay, well, I'm going to move out into uh, a, a less urban area so that I can you know live in a in a more comfortable rental income situation, or I'll move to a smaller city. So the, is there no more benefit from that? Well, I think the benefits are that people get a little bit uh, easier lifestyle. Uh, they get more space for the amount of money they'd pay in the metro area. But they are causing costs and rents to go up in those cities. And if you think of somebody who's lived in some of those small cities for a long time and they want to move, all of a sudden, you know, they're going from paying maybe $1,000 a month and they want to move and they find out to find the same place is going to cost them $1,700 a month. So, it's really put a lot of pressure on the smaller areas. Sure sounds like it. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Paul Dannison, content director at rentals.ca. They have just put out this extensive report. They did a rental market analysis right across the country. And you know what I find so interesting about this? One is the impact that millennials have had on a tightening rental market outside of big cities, but also in that this is no longer just a Metro Vancouver issue. All of those things that we have talked about here since, well, I would say 2014, 15, 16, when things really started to ramp up, we are now seeing everywhere across the country, super tight rental markets like in Halifax, not enough supply in places well, right across the country. And so it is reflective of the fact that we didn't pay enough attention to this even 10 years ago when we should have been. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
whether you're following this case between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard or not, you do know that it's happening and you know it's not pretty. Everyone is talking about it. But a family law specialist says that as volatile as that relationship seemed, they should not have gone to court. For more on this story, let's check in with our contributor, Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I don't remember another case like this where celebrities went to court and everybody was this glued to it. Uh, And it's just been so ugly. I don't know if you've been following it very tightly, but what I've seen come out it is these long think pieces, every major news outlet's covering it. And then now there's this explosion of memes and TikToks around it. So I find that like whether you find the trial uh, personally riveting or not, you, you know it's happening and you know that it's just, it's gross. It's ugly. It's a, it's a brutal, uh, it feels like, t- uh, takedown to people. They're doing it to each other and they're doing it to themselves. And what I have found really interesting about it is that they are going to court for defamation when I don't know how this trial is faring for their reputations. I talked to David Glass. He's a family law specialist. He's also a former psychologist. You know, the strange thing about this trial is it's a defamation trial. So defamation uh, uh, in the United States is is saying that you said something about me that hurt my reputation and I suffered economic loss. There are a couple elements you need to show. Um, And they're very hard cases to prove. They're even harder to prove if you're a celebrity and you put yourself in the public eye. And so from the start, because Amber never really used Johnny Depp's name in her statements that she was the victim of abuse. And on the other hand, Johnny's difficulty in proving that he was economically harmed. Uh, There's been tons of evidence about how difficult he was on set and how his, you know, his star in Hollywood had already been falling. Um, So those two things will contribute to making it very hard for Johnny Depp to win. I don't think he went into this trial, though, trying to win. I think he went into this trial trying to rehabilitate his his uh, his public persona uh, and trying to show people that he was the victim of abuse. And please give me a second chance in Hollywood. Yeah. So the irony in them going to court over defamation is because, uh, you know, there were these initial allegations that slowly came out and then they go to court now and their reputations are majorly suffering from what's happening in court. And because of the ugliness that is being brought about by this trial and, and the harm coming out of that, I wonder whether that will land their careers afterwards. Now people are getting like a full-on preview of uh, Johnny Depp's alcohol issues. uh, And they've heard Amber Heard's graphic accounts of assault at the hand of Depp. Uh, Whether those allegations are true or not, we still don't know. So how likely are they to get booked, Simi, for these big Hollywood roles after this all plays out? Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder that. I don't understand their... It, they seem so committed to doing it this way, and it's just so ugly. Yeah, I wonder if they're regretting that decision because this trial is unraveling their character way more dramatically than the initial comments that they made about each other. And now there's this whole element of who's lying and who's telling the truth. And some of these moments that are being played out in court, you're wondering, okay, am I watching an actor act or are they just telling this personal story? So the lawyer that I talked to, he specializes in family law, but he also has a background in psychology. He's a former psychologist. So I thought who better to ask then about the psychology of lying? How do you tell who's telling the truth on the stand? If you're trying to determine if someone is lying, there are a number of elements you can look at. 
of course, actors and actresses are trained uh, to avoid these sort of triggers. But in general, first, you would look at their eyes. Um, and people who look to the left when they're trying to remember something, they're generally looking into the past, their left. Uh, and if they, in answering a question, they look to the right, that's generally determined to be looking into the future. They're trying to invent an answer. So watching uh, their eyes, uh, where they look, um, watching their, their mouth. Uh, and so people who purse their lips or, or who turn their lips inward uh, in their mouth while they're listening, or people who put their hand over their mouth or who are uh, touching their nose, some way covering their mouth, that typically shows that the person is, is telling a story that's not entirely true and they're trying to, to, to cover up for it. Yeah, but they're actors. So <laughs> that's the problem here, isn't it? Yeah, that's the problem. The other problem is they are they're actors. And then we at home, we're all just uh, armchair psychologists and watching the footage and going, hmm, that's a lie. That's not a lie because we're pretending that we're experts on it, too. And we're not. In the end, this is just such bad publicity for both parties. Depp and Hurt are looking like troubled people who are being uh, subjected now to going through this in public and they're paying tons of money to basically throw mud at each other while on display. So I just think uh, I agree with the the lawyer here who says uh, that they shouldn't have gone to court for this. David Glass thinks it should have been settled outside and this is not going to fare well for either of their reputations. I just feel like, though, this is the latest in a long line of these celebrity court cases that somehow enter another level of the atmosphere when they become so ubiquitous like this. So, you know, go back in time and you can see them all. Like, we've always had a case like this, whether it was like the O.J. Simpson case or anything. There's something that rivets people to these courtroom situations. I think it's a bit of schadenfreude, but what I find that is different in this case is that this is the era of TikTok. And so the armchair psychologist now has at home, sitting at home now is creating content around whether Amber Heard is telling the truth or lying. And so that's this other dimension that I don't think we had anything close to during the trial of, say, for example, O.J. Simpson. No, see, you're too young. You're too young. (laughs) I don't think you know, Raji. Let me tell you, I was in this business at that time and you couldn't go anywhere, any restaurant, anywhere without that being on and people watching it all day long. People are riveted by watching these people that we put on pedestals be normal human beings uh, with deep flaws, with relationship problems. You know, heard and depth talk about not talking to each other for days on end. And, and people are shocked by that when that's what normal people do, too. And unfortunately, abuse, alcohol abuse, domestic abuse, these are issues that too many people know in their own personal lives, too. So I think uh, people also enjoy that schadenfreude, that element of watching a celebrity take down. I mean, I find no personal joy in this story watching any element of it. It just seems like two toxic people uh, who have been horrible to each other and now going after each other in such a public realm. And that is so true. It is sad. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That is our contributor, Raji Sohal, talking about that case. It feels like everybody is watching right now with Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Okay, let's talk about gardening this morning because, you know, there are a lot of us, I think, who are pretty frustrated right now with the weather situation, trying to get things going in our garden. This year, I had invested so much more of my time and effort into getting ready to garden. I built new raised beds, new planters. I had even started all my seedlings indoors. It's like by seed instead of actually waiting and buying the seedling plants. I was ready to go while the weather hasn't exactly cooperated. But you know what? There's all sorts of different ways that I can get involved, including learning about some new things. For instance, what is a regenerative garden? Our next guest has actually written a book all about this, and I'm fascinated to learn about it. It is Stephanie Rose, an award-winning author, freelance writer, instructor, and international speaker. Stephanie, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Simi. It's so nice to talk to another gardener every day, and well, especially this morning. <laughs> I'm a wannabe gardener, so let's not go too far here yet. I'm trying. I'm really trying, but the weather's not cooperating. But Stephanie, first of all, what's a regenerative garden? You know, it's better than sustainable. It's better than resilient. You know, we hear those terms a lot. Uh, sustainability, something that we want to put back what we're taking out. Resiliency is building things that building our garden structures or our landscapes so that they um, can resist the things that are thrown at them, the cool cool climate that we're having early in the season um, and bounce back. But a regenerative garden is more like an ecosystem that you create. So you take the idea of what mother nature is already doing and put it into your home landscape so that as things get used and grown, then the whole system regenerates itself and continues to growing without any future input from the gardener. Hmm. Okay, so can you give me an idea of how this works? Absolutely. Really, it's just following the process of nature. We're looking at how plants grow and how the soil regenerates and uh, taking those different structures and systems and putting them into our home gardens. It's You still get your garden, you still get to work on your garden, but it's a lot less work, a lot less money, a lot less time. You get that sort of benefit of being part of the garden and enjoying it, you know, harvesting the fruits and food that you produce, um, having the time to spend in the garden and enjoying the sights and sounds, but it's a lot less of what we're currently doing now. So what you said is you put in a lot of... Uh, a labor early on the season, building raised beds, starting seeds and, you know, creating uh, a lot of work in order to get ready for the season. And then the season didn't comply with you. Um, the weather didn't comply. And that's because, you know, we can no longer count on these 30 year weather averages in order to determine what our climate is going to be. It's changing every day. And it's so dynamic that we need to find ways to build the structures in our garden and the processes in our garden in order to have, um, to, to sort of harness that climate. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So for your raised beds, you know, you put in all this work, you put in all this, you bring in soil, you start the seeds, you plant them, then you harvest them and you water all season. Um, it's a lot of work in a regenerative garden. It's more like, you know, we're putting in plants that are growing on their own. They drop their leaves, they build the soil, they go to sleep for the year. They come up the next year. Of course we want to put things like annuals in. Right. So, um, you know, there's lots of room for us to do things like that, but more on the general scale, we're building the soil, we're catching water. We're choosing plants that help to sort of build the garden space without us having to do a lot of work. What I love as well, you've got a lot of great projects in your book, uh, including some instructions about something that I've actually been um, trying to read a lot about, and that is things like intensive planting. And, you know, that's one of my things that I'm trying to do more about. Also, companion planting has been huge for me this year. 
yes, plant partnerships and, and intensive planting. These are really smart ways of planting your garden. So if you're going to do, you know, a traditional vegetable garden, even in a raised bed or containers, by planting the plants instead of in rows where um, there's a lot of water evaporation on the soil level, where weeds are, are able to quickly introduce themselves in the rows and then you have to spend a lot of time doing that. If you plant your plants together, uh, closely and densely in sort of patterns rather than rows, then you're able to minimize the, the things like water uh, loss and weed growth. In addition, it helps to, the plants work together, just like trees in a forest work together with the understory plants. In the garden, if you put plants together that sort of serve each other, it helps to reduce pests and disease and all these issues that we're constantly struggling with in our gardens. Okay, but Stephanie, which plants can you do this to? Because most people, I think, we read the back of the seed packet and you follow the rules there, but you know, you don't necessarily have to do that. Some plants will benefit from being planted super close together. Yes, and it's not necessarily about super close together. It's about... Um, finding the choices where it works. So for example, if you're planting um, something like a beet next to a lettuce, the beet is going to form down below in the soil and take up that space. And the lettuce is going to form in the shallow rooted space up above. So it's not crowding them. It's just using the space really well. That weed is going to grow in there anyway. It's going to come, the seed's going to plant itself right beside that beet and you're going to have to pull it out. Might as well be lettuce or might as well be strawberries, right? Okay, that makes perfect sense. So I guess the key is trying to figure out which plants go well together. Yes, and in the book, I've got a great list of companion plants. Um, there's also another really great book that talks all about this. The book is dedicated to it. It's called Plant Partners. It's by Jessica Walzer. And uh, she's an, another author with my uh, publisher. And it goes really in depth into this whole subject. I highly recommend it if, if companion planting is something you're interested in. Okay. And what are some of the other easy things that you think we can do in our yard this year? Um, right now, because we're talking about this idea of it's a cold season start, we don't know what's going to happen. I would look at determining what your current microclimate is and figuring out how to harness the energy that you have. So for example, what you could do, Simi, with your raised beds and your starts is do some sort of cover on top of your raised beds. You can get those starts out early, but create a little heat dome for them by putting over some plastic caps. And one of the projects I have in the book, which is a really simple thing that people can do, is to take one of those clear umbrellas that you see and pop it over top of some of your plants as a cloche. So they're easy to find, they're inexpensive, and it acts as like a mini greenhouse to help sort of make that climate start a little bit earlier. Stephanie, thank you so much for saying this because this is what I did yesterday for oh. some of my plants. And I'm pretty sure some people in my house thought I was crazy because I was out there creating all these little umbrellas for all these plants. But I'm hoping this is going to pay off. And it doesn't have to be super high tech, right? No, absolutely not. It's, it's really just trying to harness the power of nature. So, you know, there's not a lot of heat right now, but probably what's going to happen a little bit later in the season is you don't know. Like last year, it was so, so hot that all the peppers got really, really spicy, like surprisingly spicy. Um, but the season wasn't very long. So a lot of them didn't mature. So you would have like some really crazy spicy peppers and some that are, you know, not quite mature enough to harvest. So in much smaller harvest and it's, it can be really frustrating if you just use that cloche over top, which, you know, costs a few dollars and you pop it over there, you would have had a really, really nice crop of ripened, um, you know, 
quite spicy right. peppers if that's what you like. Right. What about the <laughs> idea of planting flowers in and among your vegetables? Oh, it's a brilliant idea. Um, you know, bees and other pollinators head around our gardens and they look for uh, swaths of things that they can pollinate. And if all of your squash flowers or your apple blossoms are coming out earlier, squash flowers are hidden underneath the leaves, then the bees are zipping around trying to find, you know, some bright, beautiful flowers to pollinate. If you plant flowers in between, the bees will come, they'll pollinate, and then they inspect the undersides of the plant. So really, you're just attracting pollinators to your garden. Right. Plus, if you choose things like calendula, violas, uh, pansies, they're edible and delicious and so fun to include in your in your garden. You can, you know, make a flower fetty pizza or cupcakes with candied flowers on them. So I highly, highly recommend flowers in any form in your garden. Okay, I did marigolds and nasturtiums, but now I'm thinking I should do pansies too. Uh, Stephanie, before we let you go, first of all, tell me all about the book. Well, The Regenerative Garden is my 11th book. And it comes from my culmination of experience as a master gardener, a herbalist, where I look at plants as medicine and as a permaculture designer. And as I was going through all these permaculture books, I found that they were really heavy and sciencey and wonderful information, but very hard to digest. And so I wanted to write something that was really easy for the home gardener to take practical steps in order to make their gardening life easier and more earth friendly. So it's got 80 different projects in the book and they all have different levels where you can start with um, something quite small or move up to something quite large. It doesn't matter what your climate is. It doesn't matter your garden size. Everything's scalable. It teaches the concepts through this idea of um, getting your hands dirty and just giving it a try. So it's, 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 uh, it's a wonderful way to bring it to the home garden. Well, I love it. And you know, by the way, thank you so much because you've given us a copy to give away this morning, which we're going to do right now. But Stephanie, thank you for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I love talking to other gardeners. It's so nice to talk to you, Simi. <laughs> Thank you. That's Stephanie Rose, who's an award-winning author. The new book is called The Regenerative Garden, 80 Practical Projects for Creating a Self-Sustaining Garden Ecosystem. It sounds like a lot of fun. 